From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Children today are suffering a lot of learning difficulties, concentration problems, autism and asthma, and experts point a finger at chemicals. The government in this country is not doing a good job of protecting children against toxic chemicals. They're simply given a free pass. They're allowed to come into the market, they go into products, they get out into the environment. And then, sadly, time and time again, we have found out the hard way that these chemicals damage children's health. Research finds pollution is hurting the minds and bodies of American school children. We really might have been losing whole generations of kids that had potential and greatness simply because of things that they could not help and things people chose not to necessarily address, like water and air. Children at Risk and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. School is supposed to be a safe environment, but a recent study in the journal Environmental Research has found that at many public schools, children are being exposed to harmful levels of air pollutants. In fact, out of nearly 90,000 public schools studied, only 728 had the safest possible score. This study found the five worst polluted areas included New York, Chicago, and Pittsburgh, as well as Camden and Jersey City, based on air quality measurements of more than a dozen neurotoxins, including lead, mercury, and cyanide compounds. Study lead author Sarah Grineski is a professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Utah and joins us. Sarah, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So tell me, which chemical pollutants did you look at in your study, and, and what are the sources of that pollution? Sure. These would be chemicals like lead, mercury, toluene, manganese, polychlorinated biphenyls, things like that. And the sources of these kinds of chemicals are industrial activities, combustion engines, refining, a waste incineration, and mining. So what are the potential health implications for people, I'm thinking especially of children who are exposed to these chemicals? For a long time, researchers were focused on ingestion of these sorts of chemicals in our food or, you know, paint chips from the walls in old homes. But there's evidence that when you inhale these types of toxins, the toxins gain entry to the body, and then the body mounts an immune response which causes swelling, and this neuroinflammation in the brain leads to the damage of neural tissues. It's been linked to autism, ADHD, later in life, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, all kinds of neurological conditions are starting to be traced back to having, you know, an environmental component to their origins. Wow. So these are issues that can affect kids for the rest of their lives then. Yes, exactly. That's why it's so scary. This neurological impact is so subtle and so insidious that it's hard to even know if your child has been affected or is being affected. You know, you wouldn't know if their math score would have been a little higher if they lived in a different neighborhood. I mean, it's impossible really to discern this effect in your own children. And so I think that that's a, you know, it's difficult in that way. So I understand that there's other research that's looked at the brains of healthy kids living with high exposure and found that they look like the brains of Alzheimer victims. What can you tell me about the research? That was the research that's done by Dr. Calderon at the University of Montana. So she has access uh, in Mexico City and also in other parts of Mexico. And so she's done autopsies on children who have died in traffic accidents. 
And in the non-polluted areas, in the rural areas, their brains look as one would expect. And in these polluted areas in Mexico City, the brains show signs of early signs of Alzheimer's disease. Like the structure of the brain looks similar to people with early stage Alzheimer's. So you looked at air quality near some 90,000 schools across the United States. What did you find uh, in terms of the best and worst results regarding exposure? Well, we looked at the percentage of schools in the highest risk group, which we defined as the top 10% of all schools in the country for air neurotoxicant risk. And we found the greatest percentage, which was actually fully one-third of schools in EPA Region 2. And EPA Region 2 is New York City and New Jersey. We'll come back to Professor Grineski in a moment, but right now we turn to Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom, who reached out to a teacher in Camden, New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia, and where 11 of the 140 worst schools for air are located. Yes, Steve. I caught up with Keith Benson, a former social studies teacher who's president of the Camden Teachers Association. We have a higher rate of of asthma. That's really attributed to the poor air quality in this area. And then also we have situations with students with learning disabilities, behavioral disabilities. The outcomes of the of, of our sort of state assessments are, are tend to be lower. But where before it might have been just been attributed to either laziness on behalf of the student, laziness or ineffectiveness on behalf of instructors. The ideas begin getting more and more introduced that environmental factors like the water and lead in the water may have a more pronounced impact on what it is we've been seeing for so long. Keith Benson describes Camden as a mid-sized city of 77,000 people surrounded by heavy industry. We have decaying shipping ports. We have cement factories. We have a trash to steam plant where all the, the county's trash and refuse comes to this, you know, this plant. And that, that plant is within a stone's throw of, of neighborhoods and apartments where, you know, where a lot of young kids are, are growing up. And also... They're right near schools. So if kids are breathing, you know, this this sort of toxic air essentially all their lives. As an educator and a parent himself, Keith Benson says it's the lost potential of the children in his city that troubles him. There's really no telling, actually, um, what our students could have been if they simply were to have a healthy environment, you know, healthier air, healthier water, you know. And then when I start to think about it, I realize, like, damn, really might have been losing whole generations of kids that had potential and greatness simply because of things that they could not help and things people chose not to necessarily address, like water and air. 80% of the residents of Camden are African-American or Hispanic, and nearly 40% live below the poverty line. And the poisonous environment makes it even harder for people to get ahead. People live in these areas largely because we can't really afford to, to live other places. Like, who would want to live in a place where the air quality is bad and where there's lead and water? You know, so when you see that students and children are really being put even further behind, you know, the eight ball, you know, that just families don't come with a lot of money, that, you know, race does play a role in the opportunities that are being uh, offered. And when you add another element that environmental racism plays on their development, you realize, like, a lot of chips are really stacked up against our students, our children, even before they reach adulthood. And Steve, it's clear. The research backs up what Keith Benson says about school children in Camden. Low-income and minority children are disproportionately stuck in schools with poor air quality. 
That's Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. Thanks. And now back to University of Utah Professor Sarah Grineski, lead author of the study. So how fair is it to say this is a matter of environmental justice? This issue is clearly an environmental justice issue. Schools that have a higher percentage of Black or African-American children, a higher percentage of Hispanic Latino children, and a higher percentage of Asian children had significantly higher levels of the neurotoxicants in the areas surrounding their schools. You know, it's pretty strong pattern. It's statistically significant. And it's quite notable that students, you know, from these racial ethnic minority backgrounds and also students who are poor are facing higher levels of these air toxics at their schools. So there's clearly an injustice present that has, you know, contemporary and historical roots of the problem and is reflective of broader issues related to, you know, racial and class discrimination in the country. So talk to me about the siting of schools and how that affected your findings. Schools are often located on cheap land. And it just so happens that, you know, cheap land is often land that's not desirable for other land uses. So it's areas right near major freeways, near other, you know, hazardous land uses. That only 10 U.S. states actually have a policy in place to prohibit the siting of schools in areas that are known to be environmentally hazardous. The other, you know, 40 states in D.C. don't have a policy at all. And it is the case that schools serving pre-kindergarten students, like early childhood, publicly funded early childhood centers, had higher levels of pollution than elementary schools. Well, wait a second. The youngest kids are the most susceptible to, to neurotoxicants. How did you feel when you found this research? It's quite surprising. It's depressing. I mean, we know that children are more vulnerable to air pollution than adults. They have less developed lungs. They spend more time outside. They consume greater uh, quantities of oxygen per body weight. So their exposure is higher. And then the consequences are likely greater because they're developing and they're changing and their cells are growing so fast. It's not a happy finding that we have our youngest students facing, facing high levels of exposure. I wish I could say this is the first interview I've done on the dangers of pollution and the exposure of kids to pollution, but we've done a number of them and it just seems to keep happening. What's to be done? Well, I mean, I think it's a really serious problem with, you know, ideas for solutions at multiple levels. We've been talking some about, you know, the need for a federal response, more policies and regulations. And I think that's really important from a top-down perspective, but I think we could drive that top-down change faster if we also push from the bottom up. So, you know, more grassroots organizing, environmental justice activism that we could do at the community level. And then I also think in each of our own individual lives, those of us who have, you know, the economic freedom to make choices can try to drive less, consume less, eat more food that's grown in local areas, like whatever you can do on your own to reduce air pollution. And certainly everyone doesn't have the same opportunities to make those choices, but people that can uh, certainly should do what they can to reduce their own levels of exposure. Sarah Ganeski is a professor of sociology and environmental studies at the University of Utah. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you.
Let's check in with Peter Dykstra beyond the headlines in Atlanta, Georgia now. Peter's with dailyclimate.org and environmental health news as ehn.org. And he's on the line. How's it going, Peter? I'm doing well, Steve. Hi. Let's travel to Washington, D.C., or as President Trump likes to call it, the swamp. You got your boots on? Well, we were informed that that swamp might be drained by now, but if it's not, I think we're going to need more than boots. I think we'll need something more like waders. I'm ready when you are. Right. First stop, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, where, shall we say, non-native species have taken over in the past year. A tiny EPA office called the Integrated Risk Information System, or IRIS, is under attack and may disappear or get totally pulled under. So what does this risk information system, what does this IRIS thing do? IRIS acts as an independent evaluator of how toxic certain products are, pesticides, industrial emissions, radioactive materials, in order to inform regulators at EPA on how to proceed. But the current EPA plan would put IRIS under the control of the regulators, specifically an EPA office now run by a former chemical industry lobbyist. Mm, sounds to me like that classic case of the fox guarding the henhouse, Peter. Or maybe the classic case of nobody guarding anything at all. But on to another development from the Trump administration. Kathleen Hartnett-White, a top environmental regulator in Texas, withdrew her nomination to be the chair of the White House Council on Environmental Quality. Ms. White's Texas tenure was marked by a steadfast denial that climate change was a problem and remarkably a declaration that fossil fuels were responsible for ending slavery. Okay, Peter. Uh... Uh, All right, so remind us what the Council of Environmental Quality, what CEQ is supposed to do. Well, the CEQ chair is considered to be the president's top environmental advisor, and the agency acts theoretically as a bridge between other government agencies and departments to make sure that environmental concerns are a priority. Kathleen Hartnett White's nomination died once last year. President Trump renominated her, but it was clear that virtually all Democrats and quite a few Republicans were having none of it. And one more quick news item from the swamp. Okay, fire away. If you can't fully drain the swamp, fill it with delicious, beautiful, clean corn syrup. Oh, well, that would be quite a swamp. Uh, How do you do that? The White House legal office issued a special waiver to ethics laws to let a former corn syrup lobbyist who just took a job at the Agriculture Department sign on to the USDA's five-year effort to set national dietary guidelines. Corn syrup is, of course, the ubiquitous and magical sweetener that's in our sodas and many other products. It's been linked to obesity, diabetes, and many other health problems. Oh, boy, I can't wait to see those new guidelines. Hey, Peter, let's take a look back now at environmental history. What do you have for us this week? Well, on February 11, 1994, President Bill Clinton signed a sweeping executive order mandating that all projects using federal funds take account of environmental justice, the huge and disproportionate impact that polluting projects have on poor and minority communities. Despite the best of intentions, nearly a quarter century later, environmental justice still takes a backseat in public and private projects. Yeah, I mean, we're just hearing about high levels of pollution in schools and poor and minority areas. And I guess the neglect that led to the drinking water crisis in Flint, Michigan, demonstrates that as well. Yeah, Flint and literally hundreds of other communities, whether they're federal projects or not, were still predominantly dumping on America's poor and minorities. Yeah, but don't hold your breath waiting for a new toxic landfill or diesel truck terminal to be built in, let's say, Beverly Hills. Well, wherever they're built, holding your breath is a good idea. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, Peter Dykstra's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. 
All right, Steve, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And if you want to check out these stories, there's more about them on our website, LOE.org. China supplies the United States with everything from cell phones and computers to TVs and washing machines, usually brought on large container ships. And more often these days, those container ships are taking American corn and other grains back to China. But there is a trade imbalance, and otherwise empty container ships can carry plastic and other recyclable materials to China at low rates. For years, China wanted American plastic waste so it could recycle it back into consumer products. But... No more. China has recently announced it will no longer accept plastic waste for recycling. Anne Germain of the National Waste and Recycling Association joins us to explain. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So why has China now decided that it no longer wants to recycle the world's plastic? So first of all, China has looked at their environmental footprint. And so one of the things that they've been focused on is they don't want to be the world's dumping ground for everybody's trash. And part of their terminology when they instituted some of their bans reflects this. They refer to the material not as we do, which is as recyclables, but they refer to it as foreign waste. So that is pretty indicative of how they view it. So how many tons are we talking about? How much of this stuff are we really talking about has been going to China in the past? So the total pounds of plastic bottles collected for recycling in the U.S. was almost 3 million pounds, and that was for the year 2015. Of the total bottles, about 20% were exported, with the vast majority going to China. I imagine that China which has been recycling plastic for quite a while, has developed some rather sophisticated methods for recycling. China has some of the most sophisticated manufacturing facilities in the world. Unfortunately, they also have some of the least sophisticated operations in the world, where it's really mom-and-pop operations, family businesses that don't exhibit any environmental controls. As they're taking some of the material apart, there might be like wrapping that comes around the the bottles, you know, and other parts that they might end up disposing of. And perhaps they're not managing some of that materials appropriately and it might end up in the waterways or other pollution could occur as a result. And so we understand China's desire to kind of shut down some of those operations in an effort to improve their environmental outcome. But at the same time, we think given some of the more sophisticated operations that they have, there's no reason that those operations should be punished by banning these materials. So what's China going to do to make up for the plastic that they're no longer importing and recycling? I mean, they had a use for it before. How do they fill that gap between the reduced supply of plastic and their continued demand for it? First of all, there is the opportunity to use virgin materials, but they've also targeted recycling domestically. And they're hoping that with their increased middle class, utilizing a lot of these same materials, generating some of the same packaging materials, that they might be able to supply their manufacturing sector from domestic sources. Hmm. So China doesn't want this stuff. Why isn't it good business for us to keep it here in America? 
actually, you know, it is good business for us to keep it here. But our manufacturers do compete with China for that material. So it's a commodity and it is offered up for sale at the highest price. And so, you know, some of it stays domestic and some of it does get shipped overseas. Now, because of that, one of the things that's happened is, you know, we expect that there's going to be market adjustments that are going to be made and that domestic markets will further develop as a result of this ban. Unfortunately, those markets can't develop overnight. Unlike with other sectors where, you know, the mining industry can perhaps, you know, close down the mines for a little bit of time until the markets catch up, we can't shut off the taps for the recycling. It comes in week in, week out. So we need to have an end use for that material. So what's going to happen with all the plastic that we're dutifully putting in our recycling bins here in the U.S.? I mean, If it's a smaller market for that stuff, it sounds like it's going to wind up in the local landfill. If that happens, it will be temporary. And everybody is working really hard to try and find alternative markets as quickly as we can. So if anything ends up going to the landfills, it will only be on a temporary basis. And we don't expect that to happen to the really high quality materials. So there's this perception that when we send our plastic water bottles and such to China, that it comes back in the form of products, that this is indeed recycling. How real is that perception? Most of the material that we send over there kind of comes back, you know, in the form of other goods, uh, not necessarily bottle to bottle. So, for example, some of the material ends up in pipes, crates and buckets, films and sheets, lawn and garden products other non-food bottles, things like that, lumber and decking. So there's a wide range of different products that these materials can be made into. And it's really, if you've got high quality product, there's, as long as it's the same plastic, there's no limit to what it can be made into. Anne Germain is Vice President of Technical Regulatory Affairs for the National Waste and Recycling Association. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Anne. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate you talking to me. Well, only about 10% of plastic waste in the U.S. is recycled, with another 15% or so going to incinerators, leaving three-quarters of all that plastic for disposal. And in spite of the efforts to burn, bury, and recycle the stuff, much of it ends up in waterways. And roughly 5 trillion pieces of plastic now litter the oceans, mostly circling in currents as five enormous garbage patches. It breaks up into smaller and smaller bits, and tiny flakes of plastic are eventually eaten by fish and birds and make their way up the food chain. People are working to clean up the plastic already in the oceans, but some entrepreneurs are working to stop plastic from getting into the ocean in the first place. One solution may be what's called the plastic bank, an anti-poverty financing scheme dreamed up and explained by its founder, David Katz. We are now and have built out the largest chain of stores in the world for the ultra, ultra poor, where everything in the store is available to be purchased using plastic garbage. Most proudly, we offer school tuition and medical insurance, Wi-Fi, power, sustainable cooking fuel, high-efficiency stoves, and everything else that the world needs and can't afford. How does this work? Uh, How does somebody get involved? What do they have to do? They can earn a living by going door to door or through the streets collecting material and at the end of their collecting day they can bring it back to one of our locations where it's weighed 
checks for quality, and then that value is transferred into a online account. Plastic is money. Where are you working and why did you choose those locations? Haiti is a requirement for the world. In our very back door is a catastrophe that is unfolding. The Philippines has been uh, very profound for us as well. And we're just opening in Brazil. This year will be Ethiopia. And I think our entry into India will be through Delhi. Of the plastic that is entering the ocean, it is not surprising that it comes from those countries with extreme poverty. If you don't have power or food for your children, you have no consideration of recycling. It's not even in your realm of possibility. There's no garbage truck that comes by and picks up your waste. What you have is a stream, a river, a canal, and the streets, and that is the deposit. Most countries have two seasons. They have a collection season and a purge. The dry season where everything goes into the riverbed, and then the rainy season where it comes and it's all washed out to shore, out to sea rather. How much plastic have you been able to collect so far in Haiti, for example? Well, Haiti itself, just in the few years we've been there, has been a little over 8 million pounds of material, which equates to around 144 million bottles. And what do you call the project there? Ramasse Lejeune in French Creole means picking up money. And that's exactly what they do. So just how much do people get per piece of plastic? The value that people can achieve on a daily basis, typically in Haiti, can triple or quadruple their income. They're typically earning less than a dollar a day in what is predominantly environmentally degrading industries, where here within recycling, they can go from a dollar to four. And some recyclers making up to six dollars a day. Now, it goes by mass. So the more that you collect, the more you make. It's an unlimited income opportunity. Talk to me, please, about a specific person that you've worked with who is collecting plastic and, yeah. and how the project has worked out for him or her. Well, Lisa Nassis, that's a story that we love to love to share. Lisa's really never left Port-au-Prince. She as well survived the 2010 earthquake that left her a widow, homeless and without an income, and beautifully as a result of the program. She can afford her two daughters' school tuition and uniforms, which are very important, and beyond the realm of most people. It's a beautiful, inspiring story. I was just in Haiti a few days ago, and I saw her as well leading a group of other women in the collection of material. We're inspired by her, and we continue to work for her and other women like her, providing an opportunity for women to have power in the family. Where does the money come from to pay people for collecting this trashing? We sell that material as a raw material to great companies like Marks and Spencer's and German consumer goods company Henkel and many others that then put that back into their manufacturing. For our customers, it allows them to engage their consumer. Buy a bottle of shampoo and you're directly collecting material from ocean-bound waterways and alleviating poverty simultaneously. Sounds like you're saying that companies that are taking your plastic are considering this a marketing expense. That's exactly what they do. So companies willing to pay a bit more for this out of a sense of social responsibility. Yes. But, you know, when budgets get tight or the CEO or the division head changes, somebody will look at the numbers there and say, eh, that was a nice thing to do, but we're not going to do it anymore. How do you work this into the financial DNA of companies so that they see it as something that gives them value for their money? I have not yet found an organization that is not focused on building customers and keeping them 
And customers today are voting. And every time they buy something, they vote for what they want to occur. Now, I'm in London and inspired by what occurs in Europe. And one of our customers, Marks & Spencers, is sharing the story with me that more and more customers are coming into the store, taking things that have excessive plastic at the counter, ripping off all of the plastic and throwing it back in the store. That is what is occurring today. There is a wave of change occurring. And if you were listening to this, I'm going to ask you to do something like the same. Every time you buy something with excessive plastic, every time you buy something with single-use plastic, you are voting for that to continue. And if you have some ambition about changing what is occurring in the ocean, then participate. There is a complete social media department in every one of those manufacturers, any one of those brands, they're listening. And so reach out to them, tweet to them, email them, let them know that you don't stand for it, and let them know that you want alternative packaging. They listen and they will eventually provide what customers want. That's what they do. David Katz is founder of The Plastic Bank. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Uh, thank you. You can find out more about The Plastic Bank at our website, loe.org. Your comments on our program are always welcome. Call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. And visit our webpage at LOE.org. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In their new book, Children and Environmental Toxins, What Everyone Needs to Know, Philip and Mary Landrigan bring together research on the risks chemicals pose to children in the form of a guide for parents, policymakers, and the public. Philip Landrigan, MD, is Dean of Global Health and runs the Children's Environmental Health Program at the ICANN Medical School at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. He joins me now. Dr. Landrigan, welcome back to Living on Earth. Steve, it's great to be back with you. So what has changed about childhood health issues today from generations ago? Well, I think the big change today from 25 or 50 years ago is the extraordinary number of new man-made chemicals that have come into children's environment. These are chemicals that go into toys and cosmetics and soaps and household products, and they're chemicals that, to which children are exposed every single day. Now, why do these chemicals pose such a risk to children's health? Well, the fundamental problem is that the government in this country is not doing a good job of protecting children against toxic chemicals. And what I mean by that is that there's no enforced requirement in the United States that new chemicals be tested for safety or evaluated for toxicity before the chemicals come to market. The chemicals are simply given a free pass they're allowed to come into the market, they go into products, they get out into the environment. And then, sadly, time and time again, we have found out the hard way that these chemicals damage children's health. We, we really must do a better job in this country of, of assuring chemical safety and protecting children's health. Talk to me about the health effects associated with these chemicals. Well, of course, different chemicals have different health effects. Lead was one of the first toxic chemicals that, whose effects on children we discovered. And we now know that lead damages children's brains, 
causes loss of IQ, shortening of attention span, disruption of behavior. And we've come to learn that those effects happen even at the very lowest levels of, of lead exposure to children. Even a tiny dose of lead can be dangerous to a child's brain. Another class of chemicals uh, are known as endocrine disruptors. These are chemicals that get into a child's body, interfere with the hormonal normal chemical signaling that takes place in the, in the child's body. And these, these disruptors can have very negative effects on a child's development. One class of endocrine disruptors are the phthalates. Phthalates are man-made chemicals that are put into rigid plastics to make them flexible. They're known as plasticizers in the trade. Unfortunately, the phthalates don't stay in plastics such as PVC. They escape, they get into food, and if phthalates get into a baby, especially if they get in by way of the mother when the, during pregnancy when the baby is still in the womb, these chemicals can mess up the development of the male reproductive organs in a baby boy and, and increases the risk of reproductive malformations. Uh, the phthalates also can damage brain development, like lead, cause reduced IQ. And then a, a third class of chemicals that have become very common in the modern environment are known as brominated flame retardants. Flame retardants are in couches, in carpets, in computers. Uh, the problem is they escape from those products, they get into house dust, and when a young child or a pregnant mom is exposed to them, they too can get into the baby and cause brain damage to the baby with reduction in intelligence. A number of years ago, um, I attended a symposium you gave on the risks of some of these chemicals and the relationship to learning disabilities. I believe there was a county someplace in North Carolina where you found a rather high incidence. What's the link between learning disabilities and some of these chemicals? Well, over the past 15 or 20 years, we have learned that a number of man-made chemicals can cause learning disabilities in children. These include lead, mercury, and a number of pesticides, and lastly, a number of the endocrine disruptors, such as phthalates and bisphenol A. And what happens is that if these chemicals get into a young child, or if they get into a woman while she's pregnant, and they get through into, into the mother's baby, they can cause injury to the brain of the child. And then that injury shows up when the child is two, three, four, or five years old, as slowed learning, uh, diminished IQ, short attention span, disrupted behavior, sometimes even attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, and sometimes autism. And how common is this now? Learning disabilities are now calculated to affect one out of every six children born in the United States, about 15% of all American children. That data comes from the CDC in Atlanta. What relationship do these chemicals have to the childhood obesity epidemic we're seeing? Well, obesity is a complex story, and it's driven by multiple factors. Uh, new foods that are rich in fat and salt are a big problem. Lack of exercise is a big problem. But chemicals also make a contribution, and there are some chemicals, some actually some of the endocrine disruptors, that can alter glucose and fat metabolism in the human body and tilt the scales in the direction of obesity. So if you have a child who's already not getting the right food and already not getting enough exercise, and then that child is already exposed to some of these chemicals, can tilt the balance. Now, childhood cancers seem to be on the rise. What are some of the theories and how might these be linked to chemicals? Childhood cancer is a good news, bad news story. 
the, the good news is that thanks to heroic pediatricians at places like Boston Children's and St. Jude's and other children's hospitals around the country, we save something like 75 or 80% of kids with leukemia and a very high proportion of kids with brain cancers. Leukemia and brain cancers are the two most common childhood cancers. But the bad news is that the incidence, which is to say the number of new cases per thousand children, has been rising steadily for the past 40 years and more. We've seen a more than 40% cumulative increase in incidence of cancer over this time. We know some of the chemicals that are driving this increase. We know that benzene can cause leukemia. There's a chemical called 1,3-butadiene, which goes into synthetic rubber and shows up in truck tires. Uh, there are various solvents that are in drinking water. But I, I don't think anybody can claim to know totally why rates of childhood cancer are going up. It still remains to be determined. Uh, Dr. Landergan, you write that uh, these health impacts can appear in childhood as well as uh, much later in life. Why do some of these impacts take so long to, to manifest? Well, the understanding has grown in the last 15 or 20 years that negative exposures that occur to a, an infant in the womb or to a child in the first couple of years after birth can have negative effects all across the human lifespan. The, the very first studies that helped illuminate that question were actually studies of babies who are malnourished during pregnancy. And uh, scientists in Great Britain who were studying children who had been malnourished during World War II in Holland found that when these children became 50 and 60 years old, they had a very greatly increased incidence of hypertension, heart disease, stroke, uh, diabetes. Since that time, we've come to understand that what's called fetal programming, the, the changes in the expression of the genes in the infant in the womb, fetal programming, can be caused not only by malnutrition, but also by toxic chemicals. And scientists are, are beginning to explore this question now, map out how it happens. But I think it's becoming increasingly clear that toxic chemical exposures in early life uh, are going to increase risk for a whole range of diseases when when kids grow up, everything from heart disease to cancer to um, kidney disease. Um, explain for me the concept that toxic chemicals can cause health problems without any symptoms, uh, what I guess you folks would call subclinical toxicity? Yes. It was during studies of lead, children exposed to lead, that we first came to realize back in the 1970s that even very low levels of exposure to a toxic chemical, levels that are too low to produce any obvious symptoms in a child, could still cause damage to the child. And so when we started doing that work back in the 70s, the theory on lead poisoning was that it either made a child very, very sick, coma, convulsions, even death, or the child recovered, and that was the end of the story. But that seemed a little artificial to some of us, and so we started to look at children with lower levels of lead. Lo and behold, we found that these children had loss of IQ, behavioral problems, and that opened up the whole realization that low-dose exposures to toxic chemicals could cause damage to children. And that's now become a very general recognition. Almost any chemical you can think about has a range of exposures. Obviously, the worst exposures create the most severe disease, but even low-dose exposures can cause real damage. So 
What improvements have you seen in getting some of these chemicals off the market, particularly in consumer products? Well, in recent years, despite the recalcitrance of the federal government, we have seen positive actions in protecting children against toxic chemicals. First of all, some of the states have been very proactive. California, for example, is in the process of banning various toxic chemicals. And because the market in California is so great, any action that takes place in California has ripple effects that goes across the country. We've also seen market pressure, consumer pressure, make a difference. So, for example, many, many parents in the last few years have refused to buy baby bottles that contain phthalates, and parents have refused to buy uh, water bottles that were made of bisphenol A. And in consequence of those actions, markets have moved, manufacturers have taken phthalates, they've taken BPA out of a number of consumer products. Now, Dr. Landrigan, we're talking to you about uh, the book that you've written with your wife, uh, Mary Landrigan, which is about children and environmental toxins. And the subtitle is What Everyone Needs to Know. So there's a handbook. There's a lot of suggestions and comments and such here. We, we don't have time, of course, to go over all of them here. But let me ask you some basic questions. Let's start with, how can people protect themselves at home from dangerous chemicals? Well, I think the very first thing that people have to do to protect their children against toxic chemicals is they, they have to take a little time to educate themselves. Just as you educate yourself before you buy a new car, you buy a new house, and you learn the basic operating systems, you have to read just a little bit about lead, about pesticides, about air pollution, about the other toxic chemicals that can affect your child. And then when a parent is armed with that knowledge, they are empowered to protect their children against toxic chemicals. So how can a how can a mom or a dad protect their child against toxic chemicals in the home? Start with the big ones. Lead paint in older homes built before 1977 is still a big problem in America. There are still millions of homes that have lead paint. And so a parent needs to follow the directions we give in the book to understand if there's lead paint. And if they find lead paint in a place accessible to a child, they have to bring in somebody who knows what they're doing to remove or at least cover up that lead paint. The worst thing a parent can do is to try to remove it themselves because that creates a very toxic dust, a lead-contaminated dust, which can cause severe poisoning. Another thing that parents can do in their home is minimize the amount of pesticides that come into the home. One thing they can do is buy organic. Now, I, I know full well that organic produce costs more than regular produce. But the gap is narrowing. Organic is getting cheaper than it used to be. If you shop wisely, you can get organic for very little more than conventional. And the, the gain that results from eating organic is that families who do so have 90% less pesticides in their body. And then one last thing that parents can do in their homes is not immediately reach for the can of insecticide or the canister of insecticide that they put on the front lawn. You can control cockroaches and other vermin in the home if you do what's called integrated pest management, which is an approach that minimizes chemicals and relies on cleaning up food and other debris that cockroaches feed on. And when it comes to your front lawn, I always say to people, learn to live with a few dandelions. They're quite beautiful. And in fact, in the springtime, you can make a salad out of them. Or tea, for that matter. Or tea, yes. <laughs> um in your book, you talk a bit about uh, steps to take to protect reproductive health. What are those? It's very important that couples who are thinking about having a baby 
take steps, ideally before they become pregnant, but in any case during the pregnancy, take steps to protect the baby in the mother's womb against toxic chemicals. So I think it's become common knowledge that moms shouldn't drink alcohol or take recreational drugs or smoke tobacco during pregnancy. Now we're advising parents to take that kind of advice, go a step further, eat fish. Fish are very, very important for the baby's brain growth, but eat the right fish. Uh, There are charts available, for example, from NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, from the Monterey Bay Aquarium and other groups, which specify which are the safe kinds of fish and which are the dangerous kinds of fish. The dangerous fish have high levels of mercury, high levels of PCB. Pregnant moms want to avoid those. And finally, avoid pesticides when you're pregnant. Any pesticide that you spray in your house, on your lawn, in your garden when you're pregnant, it's going to get into your baby, and that's not good. There seems to be an awful lot of allergy and asthma attacks among children these days. How how can uh, parents help their kids uh, avoid those? Asthma has become a big problem in American children. Uh, rates of asthma have more than tripled in American kids since the 1970s. One of the big drivers of asthma is air pollution. Uh, Children who live near highways, children who live in polluted inner city neighborhoods have substantially more asthma than kids who live in clean areas. So there's several things that parents can do. On really bad days when the air pollution outside is bad, keep the house buttoned up. Never, never smoke in the home or in the hallway outside the apartment because that smoke is a powerful source of toxic chemicals that can trigger asthma in a child. If you have the the freedom to choose to live in a place where the air is better, do so. Although I realize in a lot of cases that's simply not possible for economic reasons, job reasons, but still it's advice we always put out there and sometimes people can act upon it. Tell me how our our governments are doing in protecting children from toxins. Uh, Briefly, what are the good points and, and, and what needs improvement in your view? Well, Over the last 50 years, the U.S. federal government has done many, many very good things to protect children against toxic chemicals in the environment. One of the biggest actions they ever took was started in 1975 when they removed lead from gasoline, when EPA removed lead from gasoline. That has resulted in a more than 90% drop in children's blood lead levels in the United States and an average increase in children's IQ across the country of more than five points. It's, it's the reason our kids are smarter than we are, because they're no longer exposed to lead from gasoline. Another really good thing that the federal government has done is clean up air pollution. Since we passed the Clean Air Act in this country in 1970, the six major air pollutants have declined by more than 70%. And it's interesting that during that same time that air pollution has declined by 70%, the gross domestic product in this country has increased by 250%. So anybody who tells you that cleaning up pollution is going to kill the economy doesn't know what they're talking about. So that's the good news side of the story. The bad news is that right now the federal government is moving in the wrong direction, and they're actively unraveling uh, protections that are designed to safeguard human health. So for example, the plan to scrap uh, the Clean Air Act and to allow coal-fired power plants to put more pollution into the air is going to result in more cases of asthma, more cases of pneumonia, more cases of premature birth, more stillbirths in in American children. Uh, The plan to allow certain 
very toxic pesticides like uh, chlorpyrifos to remain on the market. Chlorpyrifos is a chemical that causes brain damage to unborn children in the womb. The current US EPA administrator is allowing this chemical to remain on the market, even though scientists within his own agency have urged him to take it off the market to protect kids against brain damage. Actions like that are, are not good for our kids. So I think the upshot of all that is parents who care about these issues have to act within their homes and act within their communities to protect their children, but they also have to consider getting involved more broadly, joining the PTA, running for office, making their voices heard in the public space, and most of all, voting. Ultimately, if you want to protect your children, you've got to vote, and you've got to put people into office who will take action to protect your children. You can't shop your way out of it. Smart shopping helps, but you can't shop your way out of dirty air. You need government to help you there. Philip Landergan is a pediatrician and founding director of the Children's Environmental Health Program at Mount Sinai's ICANN School of Medicine, and he's co-author of Children and Environmental Toxins, What Everyone Needs to Know. Dr. Landergan, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Hannah Loss, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Ainsley O'Neill, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Carl and Judy Fehrenbach of Boston, Massachusetts, and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.